0: As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me, Father in heaven. Again, as we come to your word, give us grace, real grace, uh, to know, to listen, to see, to understand, to look and peer into our own lives. Holy Spirit, open up uh, our own lives to us, that we can, we can see uh, what you see and, in us and, uh, and enable us to see you as well, God, so that we would have hope. That even as we see ourselves, that we know that there is hope for us in you. And so, Father, uh, enable us now to pay great attention to this word. Use it in such a way that will make us wise and transform us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel in chapter 3, please. I'm going to read the whole chapter because you proved to me last Sunday you can listen this long. I'm pretty easy (laughs) to convince. Um, Again, very familiar information to many of us. We've taught it to our children. We've been taught it as children. uh, But still, don't don't let the familiarity of it uh, cause you to miss it. Daniel chapter 3, please, the word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you would have fall down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fu- burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought so... fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, But if not, be it known to you, O king. And we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Well, these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the perfects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Their hair, the hair of their heads, was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. and No smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their body, bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the promise, province of Babylon. Now, you know this, of course. You know the situation that, that these three, Daniel and some of the best and brightest in Judah in Israel... Uh, they been exiled. You know, the King Nebuchadnezzar went to, went to Judah Israel, in Jerusalem. And he, he he had a number of sieges there against them. And the first one, he brought the best and the brightest and some others uh, to Babylon. His desire was to use them to get them to assimilate into the culture there. And he did it by educating them and by giving them positions and, and all of that. Well, here they are. And now King Nebuchadnezzar uh, makes this uh, image of gold it's 90 feet high this room if i remember correctly from our architects from floor to ceiling is 39 feet tall so that again and then a bit more so that's tall and but it was only nine feet in breadth so like me it was tall and thin and uh but there it was and it was made out of gold. And so it couldn't hardly be noticed. I mean, there it was in front of everybody. And so he made the decree that everyone should bow to it. Now, we don't know exactly what this image represented. Was it Nebuchadnezzar himself? Were they bowing to him? Uh, the, the the dream it had said that he was this great nation whose head was gold. And so perhaps that inspired him to make this. We don't know. It could have simply been an image of his God or a God or the gods of Babylon It could have been to represent worship, if you will, of, of, of himself, of the state, of, 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 of the country, the nation, the gods there we don't really know. Whatever it is, that this idol was, and this image was an idol. They were to bow down and worship. And if it represented one of the gods of Babylon, it would represent it in such a way that whatever you did to this idol in front of this idol you did to this god. So the decree went out, and you got it. And, and and the cue was music. The cue was when the musicians played. Everyone who heard the music needed to face the image, bow down to it, pay homage, if you will, to it. All seemed well, except there were these three: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hebrews. This was their Babylonian names who had been exiled, and and they had positions in the Babylonian government, and. And all of that, there were these three who didn't bow down. Now, they didn't really, it seems, uh, not bow down with any great fanfare. In other words, it's not that they did this to be noticed. They just happened to be noticed. They didn't form a protest group. They didn't do a sit-in. They didn't, uh, you know, have a, have a have a demonstration. They didn't take up a petition. They just simply didn't bow down. And, and these weren't like, these were separatists. I mean, these were people, who were, they, were, they were educated in the Babylonian schools. They spoke the Babylonian language. They were working in the government and all of that. And so here they were in the midst of the Babylon and, and they just simply didn't follow the instructions. They didn't bow down and they were noticed. They were noticed by uh, those who maybe, been a, a bit jealous notice how they put it there are certain jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of babylon shadrach meshach and Abednego. Uh, uh, you know you've appointed these they're outsiders and and you've made them and given them these positions and they appealed of course to the king's ego when they said uh, these men O king pay no attention to you how dare they and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have that you've set up and so so, so this this sets it up, doesn't it? The conflict, if you will, between these three and and the king. So the king comes to them, as we know, and he he gives them one more opportunity. He says that you know the musicians are going to play. When they play, if you bow down, well and good, we'll forget your last indiscretion. But 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 if you don't, then the fiery furnace shall be for you. And then this great expression that I think is echoed all the time. So. What God can deliver you from me? It kind of, I don't, I don't, I wish, I wish I had the videotape. I, I don't know exactly how they responded back. I read this differently various times. It probably depends on my mood and how, you know, whatever is going on in me. But I don't know if they just shrugged their shoulders and said, We don't need to really answer you, King. I mean, the answer's obvious. And you really hold no authority over us. Sometimes I, I get the picture of Jesus when Pilate was there. And, and Pilate says, answer me. Don't, don't you know I have authority, you know, to, to, to kill you? And Jesus said, N- not really. You don't. You know. So I'm not really shaking in my boots here. Because the only authority you have is the authority that's been given to you by my Father. And so, and so you get the sense that, that they know this. They know this about their sovereign God. And, and, and so, so they're, just, they're not really fearful at this point, It seems we don't really but 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 here is the situation and this great expression of faith will come and think about it in a minute this great expression of real faith they say you know our god is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and he'll certainly deliver us from your hand but even if he doesn't we're not going to bow down even if he doesn't we're not going to do this because he's god you see he's god and you know how it ends magnificently of course it ends magnificently because you see they didn't bow down they, they really couldn't bow down that's, that's the whole point of the first commandment right you should have no other gods before me they knew that they, they knew they were to make no images of even the, the one true and holy God they, they knew that or to, to bow to images no image could reflect who God really is and so they knew all of that and so it was, it was really out of the question for them uh, and so they didn't. And, and then, you know, the situation, Nebuchadnezzar got really mad and he says, let's pump this thing up seven times greater than it is. So it was hotter than ever. And, and then, and it's so hot, you know, that the people who threw, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire actually died getting that close to it. But amazingly they didn't. There they were in the midst of this fire that was so hot it would burn anyone who came close to it, let alone be in it. And then there was this fantastic sight of a fourth man, a fourth person, in the furnace with them. They came out of the furnace. Again, not a hair on their head was even singed. They didn't even smell of smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar had to just be flabbergasted. And so he said, there must be something to your God. So we'll respect your worship. And everyone will respect your worship of your God. Now you see, this story should... Speak to us. And we said we're going to look at Daniel from a couple of perspectives. One, how is it that they live this? How are we to live? And then secondly, what does this tell us about God? Both of those are crucial, I think, ways of, of, of perspectives in this particular incident. We'll learn a great deal about real faith. We'll learn a great deal about God as well, I think, in, in all of this. So, so what, does this, what does this tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us, I think, something about... The intolerance of Babylon, the world in which we live, for faith in the true and living God. You see, in Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have had no problems with uh, these Hebrews worshipping their own God. As long as they kept it to themselves as long as uh, it was private, as long as they still worshipped the gods of Babylon. This was a pluralistic, religiously pluralistic society. This is a society where there are many gods. Each city might have have its own god, and and that was just fine. And and different ones have their own special deities and all of that, and that was fine. But what Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to unite all of us, all languages, all people here in Babylon. I want to unite us under this one god of whatever it represented, and now you have to bow down to to this one. You can you can have your own on the side, but but this is really it. And and I think so often that as we live in Babylon, that that the same is true really for us. As long as we keep it private, all is well. But but as soon as it influences our lives and our opinions, and we share those opinions with others, then we see that that uh, there can be difficulties in all of that. Of course, we have to be wise. They were wise. I don't think they they meant to even be noticed necessarily. Now, we'll see later on when, when, when Daniel's told not to pray, he means to be noticed. But in this incident, we don't get that impression at all. They were found out. They just simply didn't bow when everyone else bowed. But don't you know, they may have felt a bit self-conscious years ago. Uh, a f- friend of ours, a family friend of ours, neighbors, um, the grandfather in the family passed away. They were Muslims, so... They invited us to the funeral service, so we went. It was on a Friday at the mosque, and, and uh, so I went, and, and Karen went up with the women, and I went with the men, and I had no idea what was going to happen. I did know I took my shoes off and left them with seemingly hundreds of other pairs of shoes, and this was this was a long time ago. This was when I only had one pair of shoes, and I was worried that if I didn't get them back, um, I might have to steal a pair from someone else that was there that day because that was pretty much it for me But but there they were my shoes with everybody else's shoes And and I sat out in the lobby because I didn't really know what was going on It was in Arabic and, and then finally my friend Mirza came out and he said I want you to come in This is the part about my father So I said all right I'll go in and so here we all stood together And I in my socks and uh, and uh, And there I was and someone leaned over and pointed my feet in the right direction They had been going in the wrong direction And that was all right. I didn't care what direction my feet faced. And then all of a sudden, it was Arabic, I didn't know what they were saying, chanting back and forth. All of a sudden, everyone bowed at the waist, and I felt very tall. But I thought, I don't think I can bow. I have no idea what they're really saying, but I can't bow. And then, at that moment, they all hit the floor. All these men on their knees, faces on this carpet, and there I stood. I knew I couldn't do that. And I felt very self-conscious of not bowing. So I suspect they felt self-conscious about not bowing. But they simply couldn't. So there they were. They didn't want to make a big deal of it. I didn't want to make a big deal of it. I just assumed everybody at that moment in time had their eyes closed. I didn't want to be known as the guy who didn't bow. I was just fine the way I was. Became known. It was all right. But for them, it wasn't all right. There they were in that situation. You see, sometimes the world gets very uptight when we very honestly say there is only one true and living God. There really is only one way to be reconciled to Him. One way to know Him. One way through which we come to Him. And sometimes we're accused of being arrogant and we said, you know, it really isn't arrogant. It's really pretty humble. What I'm saying to you is that the only way to go to him is to admit you should be cast out. I admit I should be cast out. I admit I should have no audience at all with God and 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 so That's the humble part of it and the humble part of it is the only reason I have an audience with God The only reason that I can be reconciled to him is because this one Jesus came and did for me everything that I couldn't do Everything that I didn't do and he took the penalty of hell for me and and that doesn't sound to me arrogant It just simply it sounds Humble it sounds like I can't he did I, and the, the great news of this is that this really is for all who believe. In other words, it requires nothing of you other than the fact that you recognize your Sinfulness your unworthiness it, it, that, that's it. I, I come with nothing to get in to see God I I, I bring nothing to that table except for my own sin I, I, but I bring my friend Jesus I, I come in him and and so then I'm received You see it isn't it isn't arrogant and, and to say that there's only one way How many ways do there need to be if this way is the way and this way really works and this way is open to all Who would believe I, I'll tell you now about it. And, and so it, it really isn't arrogant. It isn't really even that threatening It's just simply to say bow to this one who is holy because you know that you're not holy. And, and there seems to be an aversion. Seems to be an aversion to that. And even though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to be minding their own business, if you will, still there was something that led, led to this. And so we realize that if we find ourselves rejecting the idols, the images, the world in which we live, we might be too rejected as well. Not that we want to be, not that we're trying to be, but it's simply just the nature of things. Now there are times, for most of us, we seem to be going through life quite well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to be working out just fine in Babylon, in their jobs, with their language. They, they knew they had been educated well and succeeded in all of that. Again, they weren't separatists. They were, they were in it. And yet still, just by nature, the nature of things, a day came when they couldn't. When they were noticed. When it really, uh, did. Happened, there was an interesting article in a recent, I don't know if this is the last one, I don't keep up the dates, but a recent Christianity Today, just a magazine about Christian things, um, about a, a campus ministry at a particular university. And this particular campus ministry was trying to be as much as possible in the university setting. They loved the university. The leaders of the, of, of the ministry loved the university. In fact, the author puts it like this. She says, I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, and cultural engagement. We avoid spiritual cliches and buzzwords. We value authenticity, study, uh, racial reconciliation, and social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban progressive context. But despite some clear differences, I, I held a lot in common with unbelieving friends. We could disagree about truth, spirituality, morality, and remain on the best of terms. The failures of the church often made me more uncomfortable than those even in the broader context. And so you get the sense of this campus ministry being Christian thoroughly, but still, on the other hand, engaging and loving, just like Jeremiah said to the, to the, to the exiles in Babylon be in it, and he didn't put it this way, Jesus said, be in it, but not of it. That is to say, embrace it and love it and pray for its welfare and work for its welfare. If it prospers, you prosper. Love, love them, live amongst them. And they seem to be doing that. And then a decree came down from President Nebuchadnezzar of the university, I suppose, or of some such, that that they could not discriminate in their leadership by way of those who did not hold to their doctrinal statement. In other words, the leadership in this Christian organization had to be open to everybody, Christian or not. And everyone sort of scratched their heads. And so, well, "That doesn't make sense, really. And, and, and so um, she, she puts it like this. She said, uh, at first... I thought this was all a misunderstanding that could be sorted out between reasonable parties. If I could explain to the administration that doctrinal statements are an important part of religious expression, an ancient, enduring practice that would be a given for respected thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, then surely they'd see that creedal communities are intellectually valid and permissible. If we could show that we weren't homophobic culture warriors, but friendly, thoughtful evangelicals committed to a diverse, flourishing campus, Then the administration and religious groups could find common ground. This is when she met with the assistant dean. She seemed to find a reasonable person. But then she moved up and met with other administrators. And the tone began to change. The word discrimination began to be used a lot, specifically in regard to creedal requirements. It was lobbed like a grenade to end all argument. Administrators compared Christian students to the 1960s segregationists. I once mustered courage to ask them if they truly thought it was fair to equate racial prejudice with asking Bible study leaders to affirm the resurrection of Jesus. And the vice chancellor replied, creedal discrimination is still discrimination. So in feeling battered, I talked with my uh, supervisor. He responded with a wry smile, but we're moderates. We thought we were nuanced and reasonable. The university seems to think us a threat. And she said, for me, it was revolutionary, a reorientation of my place in the university and culture. I began to realize that inside the church, the territory between St. Augustine of Hippo and Jerry Falwell seemed vast. Sorry about that. Ah, if you're a Jerry Falwell fan. And miles lie between Ron Sider and Pat Robertson. But in the eyes of the university and much of the press, subscribers to broad Christian orthodoxy occupy the same square foot of cultural space. And they were dismissed from the campus when all seemed well. I only raise that not to pick on campuses or any of that. Fortunately, we're not there at the University of Kansas. But, 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 but just to say that in the context of living life, that stuff happens. It may be as minor, if this is minor, to say, you know, we just can't be friends ever had that? To, you just can't really work here. To death. I mean, Christians throughout history have known that death of of trying to live life just as Christ has called us to live. Not being obnoxious or any of that, but trying to be in and not of, and yet still being found out and still then finding ourselves in situations where death happens happens we know that for believers we learn that from this situation Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in it not of it but yet still something happens a day changes everything in the context and the contour of, of their lives it tells us something about idols I think and I smile when I say this because when the Bible speaks of idols especially in some of the passages I'm going to read you one in a minute a different one that I've already read this morning from Isaiah the passages drip with sarcasm. For instance, in Isaiah. And uh, chapter. I don't know which one. Chapter 44. Listen to this. This is, this is as sarcastic as the Bible gets. All right. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that it's profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And so Isaiah then just lays out what it means to make an idol. He says, you need to know this. He says, "He says the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it. satisfied. He warms himself. He says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. They know not. They do not discern. For he shut their eyes and they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand No one considers, nor does their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. Half of, I also baked bread on the coals. I I roasted meat and have eaten. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? How silly is this? You're making something that you're going to worship. One of, the, one of the most telling expressions in all of this passage in Daniel 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar set up the idol, set up the image. I mean, what God worth his salt needs to be set up by somebody else? I mean, if, if the God isn't powerful enough to set himself up, <laughs> right? Then really... But that's the truth of it, isn't it? That's the truth of it, that the idols that take the place of God are idols that we've crafted, idols that we've exalted, idols that we have put there. And the silliness, really, if it weren't tragic, the silliness of it is that we worship these things which we've anointed as God over us. And the point is, they cannot satisfy and you can make your list of big idols and little idols and and, and all of that whether it's it's work that defines us as, rather than god and we we work to satisfy ourselves rather than look to God to satisfy us. or Whether it's, it's family or whether it's acceptance or whether it's possessions or whether it's pleasure or whether it's sexuality. The big definer in our culture, of course, people now define themselves by their sexual orientation, by their passions. This is who I am because of this sexual passion. As opposed to looking at God to ask the question, who am I, you see? And we're always looking for acceptance from others rather than acceptance from God. And, and, and so we know that, we see that. And, and, and what we learn here is how, may I say it this way, how silly we really are in not following, trusting the true and, and living God. And these idols are always saying to us, You know, what God can satisfy you more than me? What God can deliver me, deliver you out of my hand, you see? Because you see, these gods will kill us because they don't care about us at all, whether it's your work, right? Whether it's acceptance from the culture. They give us nothing. They take everything. We serve them till we die and that's it. And God says, I'm the only one who speaks to you. I'm the only one who gives to you. You can serve me till you die and you live. I take nothing. I give everything. How silly is it for us to trust anyone, anything else? The gods of our culture will only take from us and only, and only kill us. If we don't understand our work the way that God understands our work, made in his image, to be productive, to bless others. If we don't understand our work the way God understands our work. We understand our work the way that our culture understands our work, to give us status, to give us possessions, and all of that. We'll simply die. It'll just take from us. But, but no, if we, if, we, if we think about the, the culture saying, you need me to accept you, and we, we, we're driven by that acceptance from the culture, you see, rather than acceptance by God, it'll, it'll zap us. It'll take everything From us. And I so often worry about myself. What am I bowing to? What am I really bowing to in the culture? I'm just sucked right into. That I'm not worshipping God. Not taking my cues from him. Not setting him up as the one who is my God. Not having him set himself before me. I, I worry about that. I trust you do as well. Because I realize that silliness the tragedy of not trusting god and then we see the trust of these three it's it's a model for us you know when nebuchadnezzar comes to them and says you know you're gonna burn in this furnace notice What they say, it's almost paradoxical how they put it, but I think that's that's real faith. Sometimes we truncate it and we only take half of it, but but I think we have to take it all together. Notice in uh, verse, whatever it is, 15, I think. 16. All right, 17. At least I can count. Um, In verse 17, they say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, burn, from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So we have this great confidence, first of all, in God's ability, his power, right? They say, we know God can do this. He, he can deliver us from this fiery furnace. Now, that's an amazing comment. That's an amazing comment. Because no one can deliver a human being from that kind of a situation. You know, if there's a furnace that's burning so hot, and you throw a person into that, you know, they're roasted. I mean, that just happens. That's the way the science works, right? But they're actually saying, our God can deliver us from that. That's not unlike saying, oh, there's a big red sea in front of us, and we have no way to get across it before the enemy gets here. But... Our God can open it. He can deliver us some way from that. You see, uh, it, it's like that. Or saying, I have inoperable cancer, but God can deliver from that. Or I have Alzheimer's, or I'm bankrupt, or whatever it is. To look at that square in the eye, whatever it is, and know that God really can do that. Now, I don't know how much they were thinking. I don't know how much they knew at this particular point in time what was going to happen. I I, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think they knew the outcome exactly as it was going to come. But but, but whatever that is, it doesn't matter. But, But they were able to look that king in the eye and say, whatever it is that you're threatening... To take my life. And you know, the idols threaten that all the time. If you don't obey me, I'll take your life. Work says to us all the time, if you don't work like this, I'll take your life. The culture says to us, if you don't do this, I'll take your life, right? And you say, well, our God is able to deliver us from that. Whatever that is, that's threatening us at the moment. And this I know, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to deliver us from your hand. I don't know what they meant by that exactly. I mean, even if they were roasted in the fire, they'd still be delivered from his hand because they still weren't going to bow down. They still weren't going to go his way. And so that was deliverance even in that. And, and, and how much they knew of glory and understood about that, I don't, I don't know. But, but clearly they, they, they had this confidence. But then they said this too, but even if he doesn't, they said, well, wait a minute. You, you can't. That would be a negative confession. You can't say that. But they did. Why? Because their trust was in God. Their trust wasn't in their own agenda. Their trust wasn't isn't in what they thought God would or might do. Their their confidence was in God. And they said, Listen, God is still God no matter what happens in this situation, and I'm still not gonna go with you. I'm still not gonna bow down. And and, and I think that's the essence of, of a Of of faith, of a prayer of faith. God could, of course he could. God could heal in this situation. God could redeem in this situation. God could make this happen. God could make that happen. Uh, I I, I give God things to do all the time. That he really could do. (laughs) But my faith isn't in that. You see, so many times people come and say, I really believed God for this. Or I really believed God was going to do that. Or I really believed this, that, you know, I prayed about this, and I I really believed it, and it didn't happen. Therefore, I'm finished with all this. And I hate to be as, I don't know, pastoral, to say, in what was your faith? Was it in your agenda, your wisdom, the hoop that you placed before God for him to jump through? Or was it in the wisdom and the power of God? And you see, this sounds like a cop-out. It's not a cop-out at all. It's just honest. It's to say, I'm going to trust him no matter what. I know it's right. I know what he calls me to, this faith and this trust. And therefore, I'm going to trust him in this king, even if he kills me, even if he doesn't deliver me, even if I get roasted. Whatever it is, God, I'm going to trust him. And that's where they are, in the midst of of all of of all of this. That's that Great prayer of faith, and then of course, there's the fourth guy. I mean, I just, that's just, you know, honestly, I I, I I can't remember not knowing this story. But but if I if I kind of put it out of my mind and just read it along, that's a surprise. Now to be honest with you, you can kind of guess. I mean, it's in the Bible. You can kind of guess they're going to make it through the furnace. Something cool is going to happen. No pun intended. But, but something's going to happen to, to, to enable them to, to to get out of the. Furnace, thank you, gee to get out of the furnace uh, and all of that. Yeah, but but the fourth guy, you know, that's that's just that's just uh, that's a surprise that he's there. And we said, well, who is this fourth person? Well, of course, uh, throughout the history of interpretation of this passage, everyone thinks it to be Jesus, and 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 I want to think that too, and I, I really do think that. I, I just can't prove it. I mean, we just don't know. He doesn't say. Uh, but 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 you think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus who's who's there? We, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he can be trusted. Uh, sees him as a son of the gods. That's what he looks like. How he knew that, I don't know. But, but but then he said, "It's his angel. It's the Lord's angel." And that expression, "the angel of the Lord," is one that's used in the Old Testament of these of these theophanies of you with you know, God showing up at the, at the uh, with with Hagar, for instance. The angel of the Lord comes and he speaks well, we know that this angel of the Lord who's speaking to Hagar is God. He identifies himself as such. And the same thing with, with Moses at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord. Well, uh, God speaks in the midst of that. Or, or Samson's daddy, uh, the angel of the Lord comes, in and, and we know it's the Lord speaking. He knows it's the Lord speaking. In fact, he's amazed that he continues to live. And, and, and he's identified this speaker as, well, my name's wonderful. Well, and so, so you get this great sense. So, so I'm happy to say it's Jesus, but, but, but clearly it's God with him, Emmanuel, in some sense. There, there he is walking with him. And I don't want to over-spiritualize this. But I can't help but believe that we're not being told here. Just like Isaiah told them in Isaiah chapter 43. I read that early and in, in the middle of the service. That when you go through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, I'll be with you. Fire in scripture is, 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 is a metaphor for a number of things, including suffering. We, we just got finished through First Peter and fire was, um, was an image, a metaphor of, 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 of suffering. You go through the fire, these fiery trials. And the truth is we, we know them. And we go through these trials, whatever they happen to be. They could be physical, they could be financial, they could be relational. The gods of this age say, what God is going to deliver you from this? List your troubles, list your sufferings. You you know what they are. You can list them out better than I could. But you know know what they are. And, and and, And the gods of this age say, what God will deliver you from that? the impression nothing can and if you don't trust me you'll die and, 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 and then we have to look that suffering square in the eye and say that my God can deliver me but even if he doesn't I'm going to trust him I'm going to trust him and in fact in the Isaiah passage that I read earlier the expression is that he will Walk through walk with us in the fire. That sense of walking, I I think deliberately he doesn't say he'll run or he'll jump and skip. Walking is life step by step. Walking is side by side. Walking is with however long it takes. He walks with us. Tim Keller mentions this. He says, the way we approach this kind of suffering is that we approach God as God and God as he is here with us. That's how we live it out. God is God. So God is God. He can and God is here. He's with me and he'll walk with me and Therefore, since he's here, I pray, I pour out my heart. Since he's here, I listen to him as he's in the scripture. Since he's here, I'm amongst his people. I'm with his people. I'm in the context of worshiping with them. And I'm serving and I'm living this out day by day in the midst of this thing, whatever it is, this suffering. I'm there in the midst of it. And God is here with me. Jesus is here with me. So many times people come and we pray and about different things and they say, well, now what do I do? You know, now what do I do? What's the next step in all of this? And I, you say, I don't know. But he'll be with you. You'll know. When you need to know, you'll know. When you need comfort, you'll receive it. When you need wisdom, he'll give it. He'll really be with you in the fire of it. Now, i got to be honest with you, a lot of times I smell like suffering. <laughs> and I want to say, wait a minute, I thought I wasn't supposed to smell like this. A day will come when I won't. And a day will come when I'll be seen, you'll be seen, after having gone through whatever, and we'll be perfect. unsinged. No smell. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That this incident that took place in the life of these men will be singed in our mind forever. And we'll know that you're God, that you deliver, that our allegiance is to be you towards you and towards you alone. And our loyalty, keep us, I pray, keep me from bowing down to the gods of this age Cause us, I pray To follow after you and you alone Father, many of us are going through uh, Difficulty, some of them Are difficulties simply because we're Christians And we're living amongst those who aren't And even trying to love well And trying to be respectful And all of that In the midst of the world that we live it, it obvious the difference sometimes, and I pray that you would protect us, that you would give us entree into the lives of other people that we may share, that which is true of Christ. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in such a way as we share what's true of Christ, that people would hear and listen and believe, not just to make our lives easier so they agree with us finally, but, Father, so that they would know you and be saved. Father, when that doesn't happen, if life gets uncomfortable, life gets difficult for us, I pray that we're able to take that in faith, trusting you, knowing that you could deliver us from the difficult situation that our faith may put us in, but also that even if you don't, then we'll go through whatever it is that we need to go through for the sake of love for Christ. So, Father, I pray that we know that you're with us in the midst of every situation like that, And Jesus, that you're with us through every point of fiery trial and the result of that fiery trial is that our faith would be as gold and so please work that in us, I pray. We're grateful for how you have delivered and we give you thanks for the work that you're doing in in, uh, Jeanette Green's son, um, uh, Billy, and so we pray you continue uh, to heal him and for Rick Ballinger's Uh, a dad, that you would continue to bless in that situation and show yourself present there and other situations like those, Father, that we experience. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.